Hey all, this is Alex with a quick note before today's episode. Today, David speaks with Dr. James Zoe of Stanford University. Dr. Zoe is an expert in artificial intelligence and healthcare. He uses machine learning to understand everything from the human transcriptome to cellular aging to ways we can make clinical trials more inclusive and ultimately more effective. One of the things I loved about this episode is that Dr. Zoe, a technical whiz, spends as much time discussing the practical human implications of his work as he does more abstract technical concepts such as Shapley values and Monte Carlo algorithms. Among the important topics Dr. Zoe addresses, his work evaluating limitations of the FDA approval process for clinical machine learning algorithms stands out for me. As we're prepping this episode, the FDA is top of mind with the forthcoming approval of the COVID Pfizer vaccine anticipated any day. Not that we needed another reminder of the importance of sound scientific evaluation of any new therapy's efficacy, but listening to Dr. Zoe, I felt grateful for his and his colleagues' work using machine learning to strengthen our insights into the structure and effectiveness of clinical trials and the FDA approval process. Sometimes in the AI and healthcare space, it's easy to get caught in the hype of a technology's potential, but we need to keep in mind the long road between the time we demonstrate an algorithm's feasibility and the time it can actually start changing lives. We need to critically evaluate every step of that process, from study design to final clinical approval. Dr. Zoe's work encompasses that entire pipeline, and we're lucky he's here to discuss his work today. Hello, and welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and in today's episode, I interview Dr. James Zoe of Stanford University, where he is an inaugural Chan Zuckerberg investigator and faculty director for the university-wide AI for Health program. In today's interview, we first talk about Dr. Zoe's latest paper published in Nature, which is making waves in the clinical trial world because it is causing us to rethink how we set eligibility criteria for clinical trials. Using an ML approach, he shows that by changing such criteria, we can make trials both more inclusive, opening them up to way more patients, while at the same time safeguarding patient safety. We also talk about his various other research projects, which span the gamut from evaluating FDA approvals of AI algorithms all the way to deeper mathematical concepts like data valuation. Dr. Zhou is an impressive titan in the AI and medicine space. In this interview, I really came to appreciate how broad his research spans, which I think is key to his many successful projects. We ultimately close with some good advice for people looking to get involved in this exciting and growing space. Hope you all enjoy. Thank you. So hi, Dr. Zhou. Welcome to today's podcast. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning. Great. Well, thanks, thanks, David, for inviting me, and thanks for organizing this podcast. It's very nice to meet you. Yeah, so, so I've been working at this intersection of machine learning and biomedicine for basically for the past 10 years or so, started during my PhD. So I did my PhD, actually, it was in applied math at Harvard, right? Um, and I was really super interested in, in two areas. Right? So I was spending a lot of time actually in thinking about algorithms for, for machine learning, uh, especially about probabilistic models and statistics. So that's just really interesting and fascinating to me on the technical side. And in parallel, I was spending a bunch of time just hanging out at uh, this place called the Broad Institute, where they did a lot of the sequencings of the human genome and a lot of follow-up analysis to really think about how do we link the genomics information to human disease, right? So during my PhD, um, you know, in the beginning, I was really just didn't have a, a very clear idea of how these two areas are going to merge, but I was just spending a lot of time having a lot of fun hanging out at both places and working on projects at both places. And then 
uh, and it's very naturally happened that there's a lot of really interesting and challenging questions there's, that's at the intersection of how do we use computational statistics, machine learning, AI to apply it to these very complex data that we're generating originally from genomics and also more recently from all sorts of different imaging modalities and medical records. Mm. And um, so then after your PhD, what like, you know, what was the next step? Yeah, so, so I did a bunch of that during my PhD. And then after my PhD, I spent two years at Microsoft Research, right, which is also a super fun, really interesting position. Right, so even though it's a part of Microsoft, the, the research positions at Microsoft are actually very much like academic positions, right? Uh, which is also you know, maybe something interesting to the students in the audience is there are, there are actually lots of really interesting opportunities now, especially at this intersection of AI and machine learning in both industry and, and academia to do very similar kind of research. So at Microsoft Research, I was basically continuing the kinds of work that I was doing during my PhD, right? So basically spending about half my time really thinking about developing new machine learning models and sort of mathematical analysis of these algorithms that they are using machine learning. And then the other half of my time was spending on thinking about how do we apply and deploy those models to study interesting questions that are very impactful, that give us insights about human disease, right? Uh, and that continued to be sort of the core focus of my research group here at Stanford. So I came to Stanford after spending two years in Microsoft Research, I came to Stanford in 2016 where I'm just super fortunate to have a, a just amazingly talented group of graduate students from quite diverse areas, from you know, computer science, engineering, statistics, all the way to the medical school, to chemistry. Um, and I also have some clinicians who are postdocs in my group. Um, and my group here at Stanford still continue to sort of carry on working in both of these areas, right? We do a lot of work that are more on the core machine learning side and developing new algorithms. Think about how do we make machine learning algorithms more reliable, more fair and safer to use versus in human critical applications. In parallel, we're also thinking very hard about applying and actually deploying these algorithms in actual medical and healthcare settings. And that ranged from all the way from sort of earlier stage, thinking about understanding basic biology like aging, all the way to deploying things like using computer vision to assess cardiac ultrasound, right? To assess dermatology images or to help with clinical trials. Hmm. Yeah. And speaking of clinical trials, um, congratulations on the new paper. Um, you know, this, this year Thank you me. recently published a new paper, uh, in nature about, um, using AI to, I guess, change how we see clinical trials, right? I was wondering if you could tell us more about the paper in your own words. Yes. Happy to. Yeah. So this paper is, uh, it's, it's led by my PhD student, Rishang Liu, which she's a PhD student at Stanford and she really did a lot of the pioneering work in this area. And so as a collaboration, actually with a lot of our colleagues at Genentech Roche, right? So Roche, as you know, is actually one of the, the largest um, pharma companies. Um, and they're running a lot of clinical trials, especially in cancer space, in oncology trials. And you know, clinical trials, I think, are just super interesting and super important, right? It's, it's something that's has been, in some sense, been understudied, I think, from the machine learning computer science perspective. Mm. But it's actually extremely important. And the reason why it's so important is, is that if you think about this whole translational pipeline, right, from early stage biomedical research and discovery, all the way to taking things into the patients, into the, into the clinics, hospitals, right, clinical trials are often the biggest bottleneck of this entire translational process. Mm. You can have yeah. great research, 
you have great R&D, you could have great physicians, but things don't really get implemented because sometimes, oftentimes they just don't get through the clinical trial, mm -hmm. right? And people think about this whole translational process for biomedicine being extremely expensive, right? Drugs costing billions of dollars to develop, right? And a lot of that expense really comes down to the clinical trial itself. Each trial actually could cost hundreds of millions of dollars to run. Yeah. Um, so that's why we think the clinical trial has been super interesting to me for the last few years because it's such a high impact area. It's an area where there hasn't really actually been a lot of work in machine learning and um, in sort of data-driven optimization. Um, so in this particular work, um, we, we focused on thinking about how can we use machine learning to help us to design clinical trials, right? so basically to make the trials more efficient and also more accessible to broader and more diverse populations. And the reason why that's important to think about the, the design aspect, right, is that the clinical trial itself is actually a hugely complicated beast, right? So it's yeah. actually over a hundred pages of PDF, right? There's all sorts of components to it. Um, and one of the biggest, you know, one of the big decisions that people make about clinical trials is just first to decide which patients are even eligible to participate in the trial, right? Yeah. So they usually have you know, many pages of PDF that says, okay, so you will be part eligible to participate. Like if your hemoglobin levels is in this range, if you haven't had this previous conditions, if you never had this other treatment, right? So there'll be like many rules, right? Pages and pages of rules that says, if you are outside of this range, then you are not even eligible to participate in the trial. Yeah, so, I actually had a brief question about that. Yeah, yeah, please. I, I was wondering, historically, how did they determine these cutoffs? Was it arbitrary or, yeah? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and oftentimes, these different cutoffs, different rules are determined, as they would say, in more heuristics, right? So certainly, there are different objectives, right? So the clinical trial designers would like to balance. You want the trials to be safe. You want it to be efficient. You want to improve efficacy. And it's very challenging to balance these objectives because people just didn't really have very good data to take a data-driven approach to say, here's how I should design the trials, which is actually our motivation. So how people did this before and many of the pharma, biopharma companies is that they will have teams of, of uh, trial designers and also safety teams. And they often just look at what was the previous trial? How was that previous trial designed at this company? Mm. And then they oftentimes they will actually copy and paste over the PDF from the previous trial. And then they will try to go through line by line and see, okay, can we tweak this threshold from nine to eight? Can we change these values? But mm. it's very more anecdotal, I would say. Yeah, I remember I saw in one of the lines of your paper, it was, you know, for the same type of cancer, um, the same company, same stage and everything is, but they had like different cutoffs for, you know, for a different, um, I don't think it was like a different drug or something, but I, I just found that a little sad, but also kind of funny, but like, it was just very, oh, it seemed very human, you know? I think that's a good way to put it. It is a very much a human process. Um, and certainly I think people do have these people who design these trials, they try to think very carefully and about all these different competing objectives, especially about safety. Um, but it's also very challenging for them. Right, because they didn't really have a lot of the data to help them to guide this process. Mm. And that really in the nutshell is sort of the motivation for our work is, can we actually come up with a computational data-driven approach right, using these machine learning AI algorithms to provide more guidance to the clinicians and to the people who are designing these trials so that they could make it safer for the patients and also more efficient to run for the pharma company. So it's really a win-win mm. for everyone yeah. involved.
Yeah, and, and then to do that, we really just honed in on this eligibility rules, right? These rules for deciding which patients are even eligible to participate in the trials. And that to us seems like in some sense the lowest hanging fruit because you know, something like uh, 60 or 40% of all the trials fail because they fail to reach the minimum enrollment requirements. Mm, oh, I didn't know it's that. Actually, wow. It's actually a big reason why oncology trials just are not successful just because it's hard to recruit patients. And it's hard to recruit patients oftentimes because you know, they're just cutting out too many patients. You know, the, the, the rules are excluding too many patients. Mm -hmm. The flip side is that a large number of patients, cancer patients would love to enroll in oncology trials because that's how they often can access the latest treatment and potentially life-saving treatment. And also a large number of these patients you know, are excluded, something like 80% of patients who want to participate in the trials are excluded wow. because they're not eligible for participating in these clinical trials because mm -hmm. of oftentimes these arbitrary um, anecdotal rules for excluding patients. Mm. That's, it, you know, so I learned more about these oncology, you know, the, the cancer clinical trial space that seemed to us like a, just a huge challenge, but also a, a huge opportunity for data science for machine learning to come in and have a real impact. Where did you get the idea to like approach? Because I think that's a great idea. You know, like how did you like see, oh, this, you know, we should approach it from this angle. Yeah, so that, that was very much a learning process itself. Um, even just from a few years ago, we didn't really know anything about uh, clinical trials. Right? So, you know, as a computer scientist and machine learning researcher, I was a bit more familiar with genomics, with more basic research, but I knew very little about how clinical trials were run, which is sort of a really uh, operationally a very complicated project. So it's really from working with these great collaborators at Genentech at Roche that we actually had a lot of hands-on experience to learn about how these trials were run. And that's how we learn about these quite critical challenges. Mm. And I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a bit more about your, your data-driven approach. You know, like if you were to try and describe, uh, I think that it was called Trial Pathfinder is the, the name of the, I guess the framework you guys built. If you were to describe it to a medical student, like how would you describe it? Yeah, so, so Trial Pathfinder is this computational framework that we developed, right? So the way I think about it is that you know, if we take a step back, right? So what would I do in the ideal world, right? If I have all of the resources, if I have infinite resources, what I would do is that, okay, maybe I'll take a particular trial I'm trying to design and I'll design you know, hundreds of different versions of it, right? Each version, you use the same treatments, right? But they would sort of change the different rules to say, okay, in the first version, maybe I'll exclude, exclude this kind of patients. In the second version, maybe I'll include these kind of patients. And right? I can do this systematically. Um, and I'll have like hundreds of different versions, right? And I'll run all of these versions in parallel. And I'll just actually see, you know, if I have, I can actually see which version of the trial ends up being the most successful. And by success here, I mean, which version of the trial ends up recruiting the most number of patients and also exhibiting good safety records for those patients, in addition to showing good efficacy for my treatment, right? So that's sort of what be my ideal version of the world if I have infinite resources. But of course the reality is very different, right? Because in reality, mm -hmm. it just costs, could be cost, $100 million just to run one trial, right? One version, 
So I basically only get one shot on goal, right? I don't yeah, get to wow. do it a hundred times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And our idea is that then can we actually use, take a data-driven approach to simulate hundreds and thousands of trials, right? So that even though I cannot run them in the real life, but can we just actually use our computational framework to basically simulate all of these different trials so that effectively mm -hmm. I have the hundreds of shots on goal for designing this trial rather than just getting one shot yeah. on goal. Yeah. So that's it. So that's basically the the core part of what we're trying to do is the trust Pathfinder, which trust Pathfinder is really just this computational framework to simulate computationally a large number of trials. You could simulate millions of trials with different combinations of rules for excluding including patients, right? And then it uses real world data. So it uses data come from medical records to emulate those, those trials. And then at the end, it summarizes all these information together into a site of a set of data-driven recommendations and optimizations for the clinician on how to design their trial. Mm. Um, I, I have an interesting question that I'd like to ask. Um, and I, I, I wonder, you know, I think this is a great idea, um, but I wonder, do you think there are any um, like ethical implications or like, cause you, you know, I feel like uh, the most, the, a more pessimistic person would say, oh, you know, you're kind of like, designing it so that you get it right you know whereas I think you know on the other hand I feel like a lot of you know maybe on a more positive positive side people would say oh there's a lot of helpful drugs that could have gone to market that you know we just kind of threw out before even giving it a fair shot um, I was wondering like what's your thought on that yeah so I think that's a very important question uh, and certainly there are lots of ethical considerations and even motivations for this project right so one of the ethical motivations for our project is that the fact that Whereas many patients would really benefit from these treatments, but mm -hmm. they're just simply not eligible to participate in these trials. Mm. So if you think, think about that, then there's, there's really a huge sort of mismatch right, between people who could benefit and then, and then these, these potential treatments. And that's really what we want to address is, can we actually make these trials more accessible Right, so that these patients who were excluded before, they would not be able to participate in these trials. Mm -hmm. What we showed in our data in this paper is that, oh, these patients that were excluded before because they didn't meet these you know, hemoglobin thresholds or, or uh, bilirubin thresholds, they would actually, we have evidence to show that they actually would have benefited from these trials to a similar extent compared to the patients that were allowed to enroll in these trials. So that's, I think, something certainly one of our motivations to really help the patients. And the corollary of this is that it also has the benefit of making trials much more diverse. Yeah. One big challenge that we know as a community is that oftentimes people from minority groups or older patients, they are the ones that are even more excluded from being able to participate in these clinical trials. As they simply just do not have the opportunity to even participate in these trials. Uh, and one of the findings we have from our work is to show that by taking this data-driven approach to make the trials more accessible, we're also able to enroll more women, right? We potentially also enroll more older patients and more diverse populations. Mm. Older patients, I understand why they, you know, might've been historically excluded, but I was wondering if you could talk more about why, you know, minority populations would have been excluded in the past. Yeah, so I think, so that's a good question. And it's also a question that we don't entirely understand, right? Um, one, I think reason why many 
subset of the population are excluded is because they don't really fall into the right range for these different laboratory-based uh, values that are used to decide which patients are eligible to participate in the trials. Right? And we know there are also there are, there are systematic differences in these laboratory values, in their accessibility, in their test results you know, across different parts of the country, also across different demographic groups. So that could be what, some of the reasons why actually there are a lot of, a lot of women, a lot of uh, more diverse populations are excluded from these trials. So I saw in the paper that much of your data comes from um, this Flatiron database and that you know the simulations were run off of that. Uh, I guess what I'm having a little trouble grasping is that, um, so how, you know, if you change, if you simulated different cutoffs and, you know, different, like, I guess if a patient before wouldn't have gotten it, but then, you know, you simulate, you lower the cutoff and then they would get it. Yeah. How, uh, how would you have gotten the data does that question make sense? Right. Yeah. So, so that seems something sort of like the 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 secret sauce. Right. Where is that information coming from to do that mm -hmm. simulation? So, Flutter, uh, the data we use from Flutter is actually medical records based of cancer patients over time. Right? So, this data from EHR. Right. So, have information like this patient was given this treatment, right? This cancer treatment, and this is how long they had before they progressed onto the next line of treatment. And we also have their laboratory values, information about uh, their basic health status. So it's a very nice and very well-organized data set. And what ends up happening is that is, is, is the flutter is what's called like a real world data, right? Because it actually captures patients from cancer oncology clinics, hundreds of clinics from around the US, around the country, from over 40 different states. And what happens in these real world oncology clinics is that often patients are given treatments, at, um, even if they were not eligible for the treatments during the clinical trial stage. Right? Because what happens is that in a clinical trial, you can think of that as being only tested on often a very narrow slice of the population Mm -hmm. In some sense, like the Olympic athletes of the cancer patients, right? But after the drug's approved, then that drug then can be given to actually to a much broader oh, population. Mm -hmm. right? So even people that were not eligible for the clinical trial, they would be eligible if the doctors actually prescribed the treatment to them. And even, you know, uh -huh. there could be treatment that are used off-label, right, in different cancer settings. And uh, that makes a lot that of sense. information mm -hmm. is actually captured in our real-world EHR data. Right. So wow. that's actually what we use to essentially come to simulate these different counterfactual versions of the trials, because we actually have information on which patients that were excluded from the original trial, but they are actually eligible, but they were actually given the treatment after the treatment comes on the market, right? So we can use that information to see, okay, what would have happened if in my alternative yeah, universe yeah. that patient had been enrolled in the trial in the first place? I like how you call it the secret sauce. You know, it feels like you're like almost going back in a time machine and like, okay, now that we have this data, you know, we're going to go back in the time machine and see like if they were actually eligible for the, in the original trial. Right. And that's why I think it's, it's so powerful to combine these large cohorts of real world data from the EHR you know, with these data-driven optimizations and machine learning algorithms. Mm. Yeah. I feel like this, this data set was really invaluable for, you know, the findings of your paper. That's right. Yeah, I, th I think I think they did a really great job in curating and organizing these data. Mm.
I'm curious, uh, what do you think are the next steps for this project? You know, will this affect how, how we determine cutoffs for future FDA trials? Yeah, so we'd love to really push this trial pathfinder framework into a general framework, right? That would really help clinicians to design new clinical trials going forward. So, you know, we did, uh, we focused on a few com very common kinds of cancers in our initial paper. But I think this kind of framework and general computational ideas that we have here can also be extended to other cancer disease, to other cancer types, and also even more broadly to other diseases outside of cancer. I feel like in some ways this is almost like a gold mine right here, right? Because if you can say help, you know, I feel like you know the clinical trials is a major bottleneck. But if you can help companies get through that and you know find the right patient population, and that's a that's a huge boon. Would would you say so? Yes, I think I think that this this could be really uh, helpful for the entire pharma industry, or for even you know in, into broad more broadly into all the companies that would like to run these trials. Right, I think we would like to build this trial pathway into framework that could potentially help many of these companies, and in parallel, we also want to help the patients. Right, so that's all of these more diverse patients that could be able to enroll in into these cutting edge trials. I'm curious for the diseases that you guys could. Uh... I guess could could set or you know could analyze. Do you need to have the retrospective data for it? Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, in ideally, we we'll want to have data from similar diseases right, that also have these patients uh, that we followed over time. Um, so I think that's where the setting where the algorithm will become the most powerful and the most accurate. Mm -hmm. I think it is also possible that if even if we don't have exactly the same disease with the same treatment, right, but if we have similar patients or similar disease or have given similar treatments in our database, I think we can still make some sort of interpolations or extrapolations from those algorithms. Mm. That's, this is a really cool project. Um, and, and I know you have a lot of very cool projects um, that you know maybe we'll have time to talk about you know, in, in more in the interview, but I was wondering, is there anything else that you'd like to share about this project? Yeah, I think it's really been a, a really fun and um, important project uh, that I'm happy to be fortunate to be a part of. Um, and it's, I, I should just mention again, it's really a work that's led by Rishan, who's a, a fantastic PhD student at Stanford in collaboration with our colleagues at Roche Genentech. Mm. Um, I guess on the topic of FDA, uh, you know, so we were talking about clinical trials, but I know you also had a, a paper on an evaluation of FDA approvals. Uh, I was wondering if you'd want to talk about that. Yeah, happy to. Um, so in addition to this clinical trial project, you know, so there's a bunch of other projects in my group where we're actually developing specific AI algorithms that we're trying to deploy in hospitals and clinics. Right, just to give you a couple of examples, for example, we are in the process of actually running some pilot studies, right, where we had developed uh, algorithms called Econet, right, and it's basically a computer vision AI system that looks at ultrasound videos of the heart, right, so these echocardiograms, and our computer vision system will look at these ultrasound videos and then sort of assess different cardiac conditions like ejection fractions and different risks for different heart diseases. So that's actually an algorithm that we developed and we also published in Nature last year. 
And we're in the process of trying to deploy and to put this to really deploy this into hospitals. Right? And there's a couple of other projects of similar flavor where we developed an AI system, we're in the process of deploying them into different hospitals, and different clinics, you know, in dermatology space, in other cardiology space, and also in pathology. And as we're working on these different deployment projects, right, so we became quite interested in the question of, okay, so how do we really systematically assess how good my AI system is right, before I really deploy them? And that's, that's a really important question because I want to make sure that they're really safe to deploy, especially in these more critical medical applications. Um, and by safe here, I mean like, you know, these algorithms so that we develop, right, as machine learning researchers, right? So there are different ways that we have to evaluate how good the algorithm is. Right? We can evaluate on, on patients, we can evaluate it on through various prospective studies. I could try to recruit date patients from other hospitals, from other locations, or from even from other countries. There are different ways to evaluate it. And there's not really a, a a guideline or standard across all of these different studies of how what's really the right mm -hmm. way to evaluate these medical AI systems. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really the motivation for our FDA projects, right? So what we did there was say, okay, so that, you know, FDA is typically considered like the gold standard of approvals and evaluations. So we looked at about 130 or so AI algorithms, medical AI algorithms that have recently received FDA approvals. So these are already approved by the FDA over the last few years. Uh, we curated a database of all of these FDA approved medical AI algorithms, right? so, and they span a diverse set of application areas looking at all, the, all sorts of different body parts. And we want to say, to see how were these algorithms evaluated right, before they were approved uh, to be used on patients. And it's actually quite surprising to us uh, in that there's, I think, quite some substantial limitations in how the algorithms were evaluated and at least on how they were reported um, before they're approved to be used in, on patients, right? So for example, one thing that we found is that actually a, a substantial number of these algorithms were only evaluated on a small number of locations, right? Only on, mm. let's say, a couple of different sites. Um, another potential limitation is that many of the algorithms were evaluated only on retrospective data. So they're not evaluated prospectively. Right? So mm -hmm. what that means concretely is that those, somebody had collected data before, right? And the algorithm was developed and then they apply that the algorithm to the data that were previously collected. Mm. And the reason why I think that particular thing could be a potential challenge is that these algorithms are never really, most, most of them anyways, are not really designed to work in isolation, right? They're always designed to work in teams of you know, algorithms making some, uh, like a second reader or providing some advice to a, a human clinician. And you, you cannot really assess this human algorithm interaction component if we're only testing the algorithm on retrospectively collected data. So that's, that's one limitation, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the second limitation is that, of course, the retrospectively collected data could also have certain biases, right? The data could have changed. For example, yeah. with the COVID, right? It was the pandemic, things, a lot of things have changed very quickly over the last few months, right? And those are things that could potentially be missing in those retrospective evaluations. Mm -hmm. This is not to say that the algorithms that are approved are actually bad algorithms or they are not safe to use. We don't really 
believe that, or we don't have data to show that. But what we do see is that at least the reported evaluation of these algorithms could have certain limitations that masks potential challenges or, or potential weaknesses in these algorithms when they're deployed in practice. Mm, right? And these yeah. potential weaknesses that we want to address and want to flag for the broader community so that we can improve our evaluation standards. Mm, I see. I feel like uh, you know you're you're in very different you're in very multifaceted multi-talented researcher. I was looking at some of the other work that you do, and uh, you know you do work in bias. Um, and on your website, I saw data evaluation, deep learning plus statistics. Um, I was wondering, you know, if you had like a, a favorite project or you know of the projects or you know other than the projects that we've talked about so far. Oh, it's hard to say favorites. I mean, I, I really love all these different projects, right? Um, and I think I'm just super excited about all these different directions and I think they all fit in together, right? Because you know, my group, maybe we're a little bit uh, different from other groups in, that, in the sense that we really want to think through this whole vertical stack, right? From mm -hmm. machine learning to AI deployments, right? So that means that if we really want to build AI systems that can have a real impact in healthcare and medicine, I think it is actually important to go to the whole vertical stack. And by the vertical stack, I mean, starting from thinking about the biases in how we design the algorithms, also thinking about how the biases in how we source the different data sets, yeah. all the way to training the models to this evaluation questions that we mentioned, right? And all the way to after I deploy the algorithms, how do I monitor them post deployment and how do I uh, assess their performance, right? In this human, wow. AI interaction team, right? So I think wow. the yeah, reason why we wow. work on very diverse I, problems is that their problems are actually are all connected to each other. They're all addressing different levels of this vertical That's really stack. cool. Uh, and I think we need to solve all of them if we really want to have reliable medical AI applications. That's really cool. You're at all steps of the pipeline, wow. Yeah, so, so you know, I have some students and working on super interesting problems that are more mathematical, right? Think about the more foundational aspects of bias and the algorithms and ro robustness. How do we ensure machine learning is robust? Mm. Sort of have more like a core mathematical problems. And then we spend a lot of time actually just working out those, those theories. And in parallel, we also have projects that are very much at this other extreme that are looking at human AI interactions and thinking about what kinds of advice would the algorithm provide to humans and how would human actually even treat about think about advice from AI systems, right? Would the oh, human wow. ignore those device? Would they adjust their beliefs? Like how, how does much that more behavioral, hold? huh? That's more behavioral, right? Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. I was wondering, um, you know, just kind of the the inner nerd in me. I'm a big fan of math, but sadly I never made it past Calc 3 in college. <laughs> but um I was wondering, you know, like what is like a, a math concept? That you find like really cool in machine in the machine learning space. Yeah, so the one of the things that we developed is actually this thing called the data Shapley value. Oh, yeah, I was actually, curious about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, actually comes from studying some quite neat mathematical ideas. But the motivation of data Shapley value is, I think, is actually very very uh, compelling to me, which is why. I started to think about this problem together with my PhD students, Amriata. So 
so you know, before I get to the math, I'll tell you like, what is the motivation for, for why we want to think about this data valuation problem. Right? Um, a lot of the problems that technologies were trying to build, right, uh, I think often the most difficult part of building that technology is really in getting the right data sets. Mm -hmm. right? For example, for this trial pathfinder, right, so often in some sense, like the biggest heavy lift in doing this making trial pathfinder feasible is having this very well curated EHR data set. Yes. And I'm sure from your own experience and from other students' experience, you know that's actually, there's a lot of efforts that's just getting to curating different data sets, annotating different data sets, doing the experiments in some cases, and just even getting the right data together. Right. So we tend to have this sort of data-centric view of machine learning, right, in the sense that oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of advances in machine learning about building the algorithms, but oftentimes uh, the biggest challenge is in getting the right data sets together to feed into the algorithms. And that's why we want to say, okay, so can we actually come up with some ways to make this first part on the data sourcing part more efficient and more systematic and more, uh, more reliable, right? So, so this is really what data evaluation is trying to address, right? So imagine now if you have data from potentially different hospitals or from different patients or mm -hmm. from different experiments, right? The, the core goal of data evaluation is to ask is, can we figure out which experiment or which hospital or which data source is the most informative for my new experiment or for my new machine learning model I'm trying to build? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If I can figure that out, then that actually makes it much easier for me to go out and generate more data efficiently, right? That are likely to be informative without having to sort of boil the ocean and get data from all these different yeah. hospitals. Right. Um, so to do that, we developed this idea called the data Shapti value. So this was published in a paper, um, I think in, in 2018, where we first proposed this idea of data Shapti value. And the Shapley value is basically this mathematical idea of how do we systematically quantify how important each data point is, right? how much this individual data point contribute to the overall performance of my data science project or of my wow. machine learning model. Mm -hmm. right? So imagine if I get data from a hundred or a million different patients, right? And I train like a classifier to predict lung cancer or breast cancer or whatever outcome you're interested in, right? From these patient data. Right, the data Shapley value would actually assign a score that says, okay, so this data point right from this patient contributed this much, this amount right to my the, my final model's performance. So it's very quantitative, yeah. Right, and that ends up being super useful because then we can see, okay, so which kind of data end up contributing the most value to my mm -hmm. performance, mm -hmm. and which data actually ends up hurting my model's performance. Right, oftentimes that's because they have misannotations or they're noisy or they're certain yeah. have certain mistakes in them. Wow. I feel like, um, you know, much of your research, at least the general theme that I'm getting is that it's a lot of like separating the signal from the noise and kind of like, how do we really like, you know, getting into there? Like, would you say so? Or Yeah. And I think that's really a lot of what machine learning in general is trying to do, right? It's really think about how do we, how do we reliably separate signal from the noise? And especially in healthcare and medicine and biology applications, right? There's a lot of noise. There tends to be a lot of potential sources of noise and biases and confounders. And that's why it's especially important to have methods and data processing frameworks 
that help us to separate the, the true signals uh, from, from all these potential confounders. Mm. I was wondering, uh, what would your dream research project be? I think in, in some sense, I, I am already working on many of my dream research projects. That's right? awesome. <laughs> uh, like my, for example, is trough pathfinder, the data Shapley values, many of the things we mentioned here, like human AI interactions are exactly the project that I would want to work on if I can do anything that I want, right? That's because awesome. They're the projects that are intellectually the most interesting, right? Uh, they're giving us sort of more fundamental insights. And at the same time, they're also potentially could be very impactful in really helping real patients in improving the accessibility, the efficiency of this whole healthcare system. And so this, that's mm-hmm. exactly the kind of projects I'm interested in, things that are sort of conceptually, mathematically interesting, right? Uh, There's some new algorithms, new innovations we can do there. And at the same time, they can really directly benefit large number of, or large aspects of the healthcare system. Mm. Uh, so this is a question that we ask every, every guest. Um, I was wondering, uh, what do you think the future of AI in medicine will look like in 10 to 20 years? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I, I think we're really in the most interesting intersection, right? So I think this is really the area, this intersection of AI and medicine. I think this is really the, the area where we'll see the largest number of innovations and the most exciting innovations, right? So in some sense, I think, I think I'm super uh, excited and super grateful that we are living in this time and space where we have the resources to work on such an exciting, such exciting problems. Um, and I think in the near term, right, on the, on the world of the next few years, right, I think a lot of the most exciting applications of AI in medicine will be of the flavor of sort of providing like second, acting like as a second reader Right, or automating some specific aspects of the medical process that are uh, currently very manual or time-consuming. Mm, right? mm-hmm, mm. So that's actually some of the motivation for our project on the echocardiogram, right, about Econet. So that's Econet is this computer vision system I mentioned was designed to really automate sort of a very common part of the process of you know segmenting out these ultrasound videos and estimating injection fraction. Right. So these are fairly repetitive tasks, but are quite important tasks where we think computer vision can do very well. Right. Um, and it's also a similar framework was the trial pathfinder, right? So these are very important tasks of designing clinical trials where um, we can view the trial pathfinder as basically providing additional support, additional evidence to the clinicians, to the trial designers, so they can make more informed, um, better optimized decisions in the designing these trials. Right. So in none of these settings are we really thinking about the algorithm working entirely alone by itself. It's more of providing additional information, providing additional support to, to the clinicians that are work together. Mm-hmm. Which is why you know, a big area that I, I think is really important that we're working on is thinking about this human AI interactions. Right? So how, is, how do we design AI systems that this team of human AI really reach uh, good final decisions, have the best final outputs, that really benefits diverse populations and benefits diverse aspects of the society. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering if you could briefly talk about your work more on the, you know, that behavioral side of the human versus AI interactions. 
Yeah, so I can just give one concrete example. There's, there's a few different projects we're working on, but I can give you one concrete example that I think is quite interesting. So we've been actually just studying this, the following question, right? Which is what a human, right? Could be yourself or could be a clinician, right? Would a human, um, let's say if this human actually gets some advice, right? And the advice could come up from an AI system. The advice could also come from another colleague, right? a human colleague, right? So the question that we're interested in is, is would this human who gets this advice, would he or she treat the advice differently, right? If the advice comes from human or come from another AI system, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say if you get the same advice, right? Um, and I think that's an important question, right? I mean, it's sort of a very specific question, but I think it's sort of a specific aspect of a much broader set of questions which is related to, you know, if this human patient or clinician, right, gets some feedback from an algorithm, right? How would he or she actually interpret that feedback, right? Uh, would she just ignore the feedback? Or when would she do that? And when would she actually incorporate that feedback into her own decision-making mm. process, right? Mm, yeah. So, um, because that, that, that's, I think, really important because yeah, algorithms, as we discussed, are never really, just, or very rarely, just acting in isolation, right? The algorithm yes. is really providing outputs and the output needs to still be digested by clinicians or by patients yeah. or by regulators or by researchers. And really think about that link, right? How, the, how are these advice from the algorithms being considered by humans I think that's really important. All right, so we've actually been doing these bunch of experiments is led by one of my PhD student, Kylas. He's been doing a bunch of these experiments where we'd actually study, right, uh, across different settings, some medical settings and other non-medical settings of how individuals would regard advice if they think that the advice actually come from the AI and how they would regard the advice if they think the same advice would come from their colleague or from another wow. human. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I, I guess that's, um, you, you know, it would, it would make no sense. Occur, well, because the process to build that algorithm is so long, but the final endpoint is the, you know, the clinical decision or, you know, the human has to actually like enact on it. And it'd be, the whole point would be, the whole thing would be moot if the human didn't act on it, right? That's right. Yes. Wow. That's right. Yeah. And I think that also puts like an interesting lens in how we want to develop the AI systems, right? In, in some sense, the standard thing in machine learning, which is often what we teach the students, is that there's some fixed objective, right? And you want to train your machine learning prediction algorithm to optimize for that objective. An objective oftentimes written in fairly some sort of relatively simple mathematical terms, right? But what we're just describing is that the objective oftentimes it's not so simple or fixed, right? That if the final objective is to produce an output in a form that's actually easily incorporated by the human experts, and so that you know, the human expert actually makes the final decision that's better than she would have made before, right? So mm. that's actually a more complicated objective. And that, but in some sense, that's really the ultimate goal of what we're trying to, do, to develop the AI systems to, to achieve. So to like have the highest Shapley value. Right, <laughs> have good Shafi value for actually helping this human AI team. Mm. Um, another question that we ask all of our guests is, what advice would you give to yourself in your twenties? 
I think I have really benefited a lot from having just amazing collaborators that are very diverse, right? And what I, the advice that I often give to my students um, and to, to, to people I talk to is try to have very deep technical strength, right? And at the same time, try to also have a very broad set of collaborators. Right. So, you know, sort of the mental models that you wanted very, very deep, like in your particular area. So, in, in our case, it would be in algorithms, in machine learning, and computational statistics, right? So, you want to have very strong technical depth in that area. And also try to spread out across these different yeah. layers, right? To really talk to the people who are running the trials, talk to people who are on the more human AI interaction side, people who are on the more in the, you know, the cardiology space or dermatology space. Mm. Uh, and finally, you know, I'm just curious, uh, what advice would you give for med students or early career physicians who are interested in this space and like they want to get involved? Uh, how should they start? Yeah, so I would say that I've actually benefited tremendously from working with medical students and from physicians, from early stage physicians in my own group. Right. So the work on cardiology was actually led by a cardiologist, David Ouyang. So he was a, a MD at Stanford, and he spent a year as a postdoc fellow in my group, but he's actually a practicing cardiologist. Now he has his own group at Cedars-Sinai, doing really interesting work. Right. So he actually brought in really this fresh perspective as a practicing cardiologist, um, but he also has this ability to communicate very clearly with the people on the computer science on the AI side, right? And he ended mm -hmm. up having a lot of really interesting projects in collaboration with some of my computer science PhD students. And I have another example where there's currently a postdoc in my group, Roxana. So she's actually an MD PhD. So she's also a practicing dermatologist, right? So she got, actually has the clinic, dermatology clinic one, one day a week. The other times she's a postdoc in my group was doing a lot of really interesting computational work in machine learning and AI, right? And Roxana also has this, this amazing ability, right? To, to take real problems that she sees in her dermatology clinics, right? And then translate them into technical questions, right? In AI and algorithms that can be amenable in the sense that they're amenable and they can be addressed by technical advances that we can make in machine learning. Right. So I would say that this ability to, I mean, I think that that's really one of the unique advantages that often physicians and medical students have is that they often have much more experience, right? Working with patients, working with healthcare systems compared to people coming purely from engineering side. And I think oftentimes an extremely important ability is, is if they can identify concrete problems in medicine, in healthcare, Right. And then be able to have the language to translate those problems mm -hmm. into problems that can then be framed as sort of AI problems or computer vision problems, right? Or uh, statistics problems. Right? Because once they have, once they can do that translation, then there are a lot of resources that we and people like us can try to bring in to help to work together to address those problems. So I think, wow. I think that's what made. Yeah made David and Roxana so successful is, is really in being able to bridge these areas. And I think that's sort of the phenotype of what would make a lot of the early career physicians crazy. <laughs> I like that. The phenotype. I like that. Mm. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Zhou. Um, I really enjoyed this interview. I was wondering, is there any final closing words that you'd like to end with? Well, thank you for, thanks again for having me, David. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's been a, a really fun discussion.